Turning your Bibles to Malachi, we're in Malachi chapter 2, 3. We're in chapter 3, verses uh, 7 to 12 today, uh, but we're really going to be looking and, and honing in just on a couple of verses. As we look at this, let's remember the center of Malachi, kind of the heart and the hub of Malachi's message uh, comes out of the questions that people are asking about God and his love and his justice and his care for them. The very first statement that God makes is, I have loved you, says the Lord, Malachi 1 verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? And later on, Malachi 3.6, we looked at this last week, Malachi, again, God is speaking through him and, and he says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And these two verses really kind of form the, the superstructure, the backbone of Malachi's message and Israel's predicament. God is declared consistently and unfailingly that he loves his people and his love has sustained them through the exile, brought them back to Israel, and he continues to sustain them in their present struggles. I have loved you. I continue to love you. And the central issue that Malachi is addressing throughout his prophecy is that people are questioning God's abiding love and his presence with them. The people to whom Malachi is speaking are living really in what we would call functional atheism. They do all the stuff, but they think God's pretty much absent from the scene. They go to the temple, they go through the religious routines, but they no longer believe God is present with them, that he is concerned for them, or that he will act on their behalf. They have a form of religion, but they've lost the relationship. See, when all that we do is religious routine, worship becomes a duty, and our expectations of what God should do get out of kilter. We expect God to provide for us based on what we've given him. We want a return on our investment. And when God doesn't come through as we expect, we'll move our investments elsewhere, whether it's our finances, our time, our energy, or our hearts. This is why Malachi's audience was bringing less than perfect sacrifices, less than full offerings, less than thankful hearts to their worship gatherings. They were experiencing some tough times, and they blamed God for not coming through on his promises. If we go back into the, uh, the uh, pre-exilic prophets and some of the exilic prophets, those guys that were speaking before the Babylonian exile and warning the people of Israel and those who uh, prophesied while um, Israel was in captivity, we'd find one of the promises that rings through over and over again is that God's going to return, God's going to save you, God's going to bring you back, the temple's going to be more glorious than ever, and, and the, you know, uh, Haggai, the desired things of the nations will come into the temple and it's going to just be glorious and better than it ever was. But as we learned in Nehemiah, for almost a generation, the walls were broken down. Haggai and Zechariah had to come along and encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And when they got to it, finally, Haggai chapter 2, does this not seem to you as nothing, those of you that remember the former temple of Solomon? And it was, it was a depressing time. And the people were struggling with a lot of things. And so their expectations hit reality. How often do our expectations hit reality and we go, hmm, ugh, this is not what I expect, this is not what I dreamed, this is not what I hoped for, but 
here it is. So what expectations did you come with today? What expectations do you have of God's blessing and provision? And have you ever felt that God has let you down, not come through? Or have you questioned how much your giving of your time, your money is really worth it? This is what Malachi is addressing. So let's stand as we read Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Let's stand together as we hear this word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So the temptation for me this morning is to focus on the tithing part of this, right? That's normally what we do when we hit this passage. But I'm going to suggest to you it's not about giving. That's part of the issue. It's a secondary issue and it's a symptom of a deeper problem that needs to be addressed first. Malachi is pointing out the fact that the people are out of fellowship with God and they need to return. This passage is really about turning back to God. See, before we discuss giving, we must settle the issue of turning to God. Return to me and I will return to you. This is the heart of the message of this passage. The accusation that God levels against the people here is that they have taken a very different direction in life. They have left the path that he had called them to and they have wandered away. The Hebrew word here for, for um, turn aside, your fathers have turned aside, verse 7, is the same that pops up a number of times, but Exodus 32, 8 they have turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. And this is God speaking to Moses, who is on Mount Sinai. He's just received the law. And for 40 days, he's been on this mountain, right? And God says, hey, get back down there. Your people whom you brought out of Egypt have fallen away from the direction I gave them. It's very interesting to note the, uh, the way God and Moses speak about the people of Israel. Because here's God saying, your people whom you let out of Egypt. And then Moses will turn around and say, no, they're your people whom you let out of Egypt. And they kind of, you know, they're, they're passing the buck back and forth, uh, depending on the day and Israel's journey. <laughs> I remember hearing once, you know, there's days when Moses is ticked off with the people and demands a God act. And then there's days where God's kind of ticked off with the people and Moses is intervening for the people. It would, it's a good thing they didn't both kind of happen on the same day. 
But Malachi is reminding the people that their behavior and their experience is nothing new. This has been a pattern. And hasn't it just been a pattern since like Genesis chapter 3? God said, this is, this is for your blessing, this is for your good, this is for your prosperity. Well, we think we can do it differently. I mean, we think there's a better way to go about this than God's way. But remember, God has said, I have loved you, I continue to love you, and I, I myself, I do not change, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. This is about turning to God. God is faithful when we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13. So this is really a, a, a passage about turning back to God, turning our lives back to his direction. So the solution to the problem that Malachi is identifying here is not to just increase your giving, to put more in the offering plate, to bring better sacrifices, Though that should be a result of this, the solution to the problem is return to me. Return to me. Return to the relationship. The Hebrew word return occurs 1,050 times in the Old Testament. It is the 12th most common verb in the Old Testament. Return, return, return over and over and over again. The theological word book of the Old Testament states about this verb, to be sure there is no systematic spelling out of the doctrine of repentance in the Old Testament. It is illustrated more than anything else. It's, it's a picture. Turn around. The theological word book continues, yet the fact that people are called to turn either to or away from implies that sin is not an eradicable sin or stain, but by turning but by turning, which is a God-given power, a sinner can redirect his destiny. There are two sides in understanding conversion, the free sovereign act of God's mercy and man's going beyond contrition and sorrow to a conscious decision of turning to God. The latter includes repudiation of all sin and an affirmation of God's total will for one's life. Going beyond contrition and sorrow for sin and a conscious decision of turning to God. Now, often we think repentance is, oh, gee, I screwed up, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, please forgive me, done, finished. That's only half of it. Repentance is turning away from sin and that behavior, and yes, feeling sorry for it, but then turning to God and saying, what is your way? What is your direction? How now do I need to live? The audience was questioning that they actually even needed to do it. Right? Malachi, God's saying through Malachi, return to me and I'll return to you, but how, what's the question? How? Literally, in what? And as we've seen over the last number of weeks in Malachi and, and throughout this, this prophecy, these are not questions of honest seeking, but of incredulity. In the context of the ongoing questioning and doubting of God's love and God's justice and God's presence, the, the, the question really conveys this sense. Really, God? We're here in Jerusalem. We have returned from the exile, unlike other people who stayed back in Babylon and other places. We came back. 
God, you, you brought us here. You promised to, to bless us here. So what are you getting at? We think we've really done enough considering the circumstances. And your blessing is obviously lacking. So really, do we need to repent? None of the questions the people ask in Malachi are honestly seeking and surrendering to God's purposes. They are always tinged with skepticism and doubt. And if at the very heart of the matter we doubt God's love and God's loyalty and God's justice, if we presume upon his provision, we will always seek to control our lives and define the limits of our surrender to God. It's not about the amount of money. It's about the totality of our lives. It's about recognizing that the direction of our lives is heading away from God And the call to repent is a call to turn our lives back to his ways. Repentance isn't an event, it's a lifestyle. Martin Luther, in the 95 thesis he posted on the Wittenberg door, kind of launched the Protestant Reformation, the very first one dealt with repentance. And he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The reason is that the reason for this is that although Christians have already received the benefits of justification through the merits of Christ in terms of their standing in righteousness before the Father, they are still burdened by the desires of the flesh prior to glorification. Hence, the Christian life is one of a continual striving in faith to put to death the deeds of the body, in order to live by the Spirit. Romans 8.13. So it's not about giving. It's about turning to God. And then it's about giving. Verse 8. See, when, when a life of growing surrender to God in his ways it starts looking differently than, than the world around us, how we relate to one another, how we manage our resources starts to undergo significant changes as we continue to grow in our awareness of God's presence, his purposes, his love, and his justice. And as the gospel changes, our hearts, our priorities follow. And we can see this in the life of Jesus' first disciples. You know, they didn't go from being fishermen to planting churches overnight. It took them a good three and a half, four, five years and more. But it started with the first step of change. Mark chapter 1, 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. The life they knew, they turned to Jesus and followed him. And everything changed. 
And more and more people started following Jesus. And then in Mark chapter 3, Jesus narrows it down to, to a specific group of people. He went up on a mountain, called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Everything about their lives radically changed the moment they left their nets and their family and followed Jesus. Their priorities radically changed. How they would spend their lives changed. Everything changes when Jesus calls them. They repented of the life they knew for a life to which Jesus called them. And it's not that the life they knew was bad. That was, it was like the family business. It's what you do. It was the job you had. You know, you, you grow up, you find a job, you get at it, you do stuff, you have a family, all good things. But in their case, Jesus showed up and said, I've got something different for you to do. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your priorities. Everything is going to revolve around me and the gospel now. Mark chapter 8, 34 to 35, Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples. So this is not just the disciples. It's not just the apostles. It's a much, much larger group. And Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's about turning to God with all of our lives. So how are you investing your life right now? And where is your time spent? How do you decide where to invest your finances, your time, your energy, your life? How much of a say does Jesus have over it all? Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't call us to join a club that meets once a week for an hour. Throw some money in a plate, do daily devotionals, volunteer at some activities now and then when we have time. He calls us to a life of devotion to himself as Lord and Savior. Where all that we are and all that we do and all that we hope for are centered on his glory. He calls us to be so taken with his presence and his love and his freedom and his justice that we can't help but praise him and orient all of our energy and all of our resources for his kingdom purposes. He calls us to surrender our lives. And I ask myself, have I really trusted Jesus with my life right here, right now? Or am I still the one controlling my stuff? Are we convinced 100% that God loves us? Do we deeply believe that in the end, his justice will correct every wrong of history according to his righteousness? Does our faith rest firmly on the unchanging covenant of love that God has relentlessly pursued his people with? And if those are all true, why am I holding back from God right now? See, the, Malachi, the, the people Malachi addressed, they showed up to church. They brought their offerings. They weren't the best. It's not exactly what God asked for, but... 
They figured it was passable. They gave financially here and there. If they could afford it, their attitude was that they had done enough for God, but God hadn't really done enough for them. And they doubted his love, disbelieved his justice, and they believed he had left them and no longer was interested in acting. But God said, I do not change. His love endures, his justice reigns, and he continually invites us to return to him and to be more concerned about our relationship with him than anything else. So it's not about giving. It's about returning. It's about turning our lives completely in the direction that God wants us to go. And that's a lifestyle, not an event. That's a daily thing, not a one-time prayer. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. This is nothing less than an invitation to relationship with God. To people who are skeptical and jaded, God invites them to simply yet profoundly return to him and be reconciled. And he welcomes them back in his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The people Malachi's addressing were questioning God's love and God's justice and God's presence with them. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the unchanging justice of God and revealed the unchanging love of God. Reconciliation with God is available to everyone. It's not how much you give. It's not how much you do. It's not how good you live. It's about returning to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there isn't a day where I don't need to turn back to you. As the the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.
Lord, every day we face the, the, the struggle of living a God-focused, Christ-centered life. Help us, Lord, we need your help. Help us to turn to you. Show us what it means to return to you and help us to ask that question, not skeptically, but deeply and honestly. And maybe it does affect our giving. Maybe it does affect our finances. It will. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body, your whole life, everything that you are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, help us to return to you daily. Align our lives with your purposes, your priorities. May they become ours. Giving 100% is easy. Giving 98% is really, really hard because we're always in the tension of holding something back. So Father, free us from the desire to control our lives and help us to abandon ourselves to your love, your mercy, and your justice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing the doxology as we close today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.